Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. So glad you're here. This is a momentous day because we are uh, we're wrapping up the book of Isaiah. We've been studying the book of Isaiah since uh, a year ago, February, working our way through those 66 chapters. Um, and today we come to the final message that God had for this ancient uh, Israeli prophet, the prophet Isaiah. He was used by God for almost six decades. He started out as a young man, and now as he pens these final words as an old man, this is the final message. Um, his prophetic ministry was incredibly impactful. This was a, a real statesman. Isaiah was no uh, lightweight. He walked the halls of, uh, of Jerusalem in the highest echelons of power. According to chapter 1, uh, verse 1, this vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem was in the days of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. This man left a, a real impact. He was a real influencer for God, a powerful spokesman for God. And what he prophesied was staggering in its theological depth. He, of, of any prophet in the Old Testament, I mean, this guy Isaiah stands out as the preeminent Old Testament prophet. And of any prophet in the Old Testament, he spoke most about Yahweh, this God of Israel. He spoke about this coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, more than any other Old Testament writer. He is called, or his book, Isaiah, has oftentimes been called the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the ancient prophet Isaiah, because he's he wrote so much about who Jesus Christ was and his coming. One theologian, author, Merrill Unger, put it this way, Isaiah is the great messianic prophet and prince of Old Testament seers. For splendor of diction, brilliance of imagery, versatility and beauty of style, profundity and breadth of prophetic vision, he is without peer. And yet, for all the profundity and the brilliance of his writing, Isaiah's message is a very simple one. In fact, you can kind of summarize it by the meaning of his name, Isaiah. It's a name that means the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. Jehovah God is the one and only God. He is the one and only Redeemer. He is the one and only one who can bring salvation. He's the one and only one who can put this world back together again. And to those who trust him, Isaiah said there will be an experience of righteousness and peace and eternal joy, the likes of which this world has never seen. It's coming one day. To those who don't trust him, there will be no salvation but there will be certain wrath and destruction. That's the message of Isaiah. And those contrasting themes of coming righteousness and blessing and peace, shalom, and coming death and destruction to those who don't follow him, don't follow God, those contrasting themes run throughout the book of Isaiah. 
So this is one final message, chapter 66. And it seems like all those themes are kind of summarized in this final chapter. There's words of blessing and there's words of warning. So again, Isaiah chapter 66. Let me read starting at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. So where then is the house you could build for me? Where there is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, declares the, the Lord. So as Isaiah begins his final chapter, the last things that he is going to write as a prophet of Israel, he begins with this theme that we've seen throughout Isaiah, the transcendent um, glory and majesty of God, the immensity of God. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. I am the sovereign creator, majestic Lord of all. And again, we've been reminded of this throughout Isaiah. For instance, chapter 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Over and over we've been reminded he is singularly, uniquely the one and only sovereign God. He's Jehovah, Yahweh. And the implication of this is heaven's my throne, earth is my footstep. Um, Where's the house you could build for me? I mean, how can you confine me? Is there a box you can put me in, God is saying and suggesting? The transcendent immensity of God. He cannot be viewed as a, as a puppet on strings that we can, we can pull and move to our own liking. He is Lord of all. And so what is the response of mankind? The last part of verse 2. This is the one I look for, says God. It's the one who's humble, contrite of spirit, and trembles at my word. If we understand the immensity of God and his glory has been revealed all throughout Isaiah, what is the response of, of mankind? What is God looking for? A person who is understanding themselves in light of his glory. And he says it's the person who's simply humble who understands in reality who he is in light of this great God, and he's broken in spirit. It's a fascinating word, poor in spirit. Um, it's a word that literally means, or contrite of spirit, it's a word that means to be, it's the only time used in a spiritual context, this word. It's a word that literally means to be lame or crippled. And this is the only place in the Old Testament this word is used in a spiritual sense, and it's talking about a reality that we look within our own spirits and we say we are lame, we are crippled, we are broken before a holy God. And we become a word trembler. We tremble at his word. Because we've come to the realization he's God, we're not. He's Jehovah God. Now sadly, the opposite is so often the case. Verse 3, but... He who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. And he who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways 
and their soul delights in their abominations. What does man do? He decides to go it alone. I'll go my own way. I'll delight in the things that I choose to do. I'll figure out life, and I'll figure out um, religion and how to approach God. I'm the captain of my fate. I'll take charge. And in contrast to the word tremblers, the one who's humble and contrite of spirit is the proud self-worshipper. And these uh, words that are used here in verse 3, the opposites, they, here's a person who, who outwardly may look religious. Oh, they're, they're killing the ox for their sacrifice, but God is saying it's no different than killing a man. Oh, they're sacrificing the lamb according to the law, but it's, from God's perspective, it's like breaking a dog's neck. Oh, they're offering a grain offering, but it's, it's just like offering swine's blood. See how reprehensible that is to a Jew? It's, it's burning incense, but no, it's really just offering to idols a blessing. They're going their own way. And when a man goes their own way and figures out life on their own, God does not take kindly to that. This is what man does, and so what does man get from the hand of God? When you don't recognize the transcendent immensity, the glory of God, and you go on your own, what do you get? What are the consequences? Verse 4. So, I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread. And if you notice real quickly the play on words from the last part of verse 3, last part of verse 3, man has chosen their own way and their soul delights in those abominations, and God now reverses it, beginning of verse 4, well, I'll choose your way, which is punishment. And instead of enjoying your delights, what you think are delights, I'm going to bring on you what you dread. Why? He's God. He's a sovereign Lord. He calls the shots. No one else does. And so he brings the consequences. You never find in sin, by the way, what you go there to find. God will always make sure of that. And so, verse 4, so I choose their punishments, I bring upon them what they dread because I called and no one answered. I spoke, but they didn't listen. And they did evil in my sight. And they chose that in which I did not delight. It's mankind forging their own path. And so he says in verse 5, hear the word of the Lord you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, they've said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they would be put to shame. The real word tremblers are being persecuted by the word forsakers. It says, your brothers hate you. They exclude you for my name's sake but they're going to be punished. Verse 6, a voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense in his enemies. What does a man do? He plans his own life. He figures out his own ways to the exclusion of God. What does a man get? The judgment of God. This is the theme that has been throughout the book of Isaiah. Now, 
starting in verse 7, God is going to promise some things that he's going to accomplish. Verse 7 through 9 is a really interesting paragraph. We switch now from the, from the judgment on the word forsakers. And God now looks ahead to a time that he is going to restore his favored people, the Israelites, back into that wonderful relationship with him that's coming again one day. We've seen this again in the prophecies of Isaiah. So verse 7 says, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, I who, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says the Lord? In other words, this is a picture of the coming fruitfulness of Israel in the coming days, in the future days, when God is going to bring his people back again and they're going to enter this time of wonderful blessings that we have called the millennial blessings of the Lord. When, when the Messiah returns and he sets up his throne and his kingdom on this earth in Jerusalem, he's going to gather those people together. It's a miraculous birthing again of a nation that will turn to him and believe and trust him. It's, it's future. It's coming. Now again, we've seen this theme throughout Isaiah, like in chapter 49. For your waste and desolate places and your destroyed lands, surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, the place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. This is in chapter 49, a prophetic statement of the coming um, revitalization of that holy promised land as God's people come back to that land one day to fulfill prophetic scripture. Or in chapter 54, shout for joy, O barren one, you who have been born, you have born no child. Break forth in the joyful shouting and cry aloud, you have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. This is, again, a future prophetic statement of the coming conclusion of this world when God is going to call forth his people again from the four corners of the world, and he will save them, he will redeem them when their Messiah returns to this earth. The second coming of Jesus Christ is being talked here. Paul picks up on this, by the way. We won't turn there, but in Romans chapter 11, we've seen it before, verse 26, the apostle Paul talks about this day. The deliverer will come, and thus all living Israelites will be saved because Jesus Christ is going to accomplish it. That's the promise. It's built right out of here from the book of Isaiah. And once again, in this final chapter of the book, Isaiah comes back to that key theme. Now, it's going to be a time of blessing, verse 10. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast, and that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, look, behold, 
I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like the overflowing stream. And you shall be nursed and you shall be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The blessings that are going to come to Jerusalem. Verse 10 and 11, great joy. Verse 12, unimaginable peace flowing like a river to that land. Comfort. This began the whole final section of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people. And now at the final, the final verses of this book, Isaiah says, there will be great comfort in Jerusalem. God is going to restore and fulfill all his plans. But look at verse 14. Then you shall see this, your heart shall be glad, your bones shall flourish like the new grass, the hand of the Lord shall make all this known to his servants, but he shall be indignant towards his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, for the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be any. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens. This is, by the way, a really interesting verse. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to the gardens, following one in the center, who eats swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice, <laughs> shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. He shall be indignant towards his enemies. And so while God's redeemed people are going to be experiencing eternal joy and peace and comfort of the Lord as Jesus will reign supreme in Jerusalem, he will be dealing with his enemies who have forged their own path. That verse 17 is, um, is just descriptions of pagan disgusting religious practices. People who have turned their heart to worship creatures like a little mouse over the transcendent, majestic God. And God will come in wrath. You see, Isaiah is talking about there are either word tremblers who are blessed or word forsakers who are cursed. And this has been found throughout the book of Isaiah, a recurring theme. But the final paragraph of Isaiah's book, verses 18 through 24, gives us one last description of this glorious coming new age, what the world will really look like and when. Verse 18 for I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come and they will see my glory. Now again, we won't take the time to turn there, but clear back in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God called one man, one family, Abraham, and he gave Abraham an unconditional promise. I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham, at some point and some way, all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in you. This is what Isaiah is referring to in verse 18. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. <laughs> Has there ever been a time in human history that all the nations and all the tongues of man has come and seen the glory of God and bowed down before it? Never. But it's coming. And Isaiah has prophesied this over and over and over again. The day is coming. Now what these verses are describing is this time of universal blessing when God's peace, his shalom, his, his wholeness, his completeness, his righteousness, his justice will be experienced by all the nations. Verse 19, he says, And I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, throughout the nations. And they need to list these, Tarshish and Put and Lud and Meshach and Rosh and Tubal and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have never heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. And God is saying, as, as parts of these nations come together and see his glory, they're going to declare it to the others who have not yet, so that all the nations will come and see the glory of God. There's going to be universal blessings and acknowledgement of the glory of God. God's glory is going to shine throughout all the world. There are going to be missionaries through it. Verse 20, then they, these Gentiles, shall bring all your brethren from all the nations. So they're going to call all the Jewish people from all the nations that have been scattered. And it's going to be like a grain offering to the Lord. And by any means possible, on horses and chariots and litters and mules on camels, they're going to come to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offerings and clean vessels to the house of the Lord, worldwide blessings and acknowledging the glory of God. And one day on this earth, from sea to shining sea, from pole to pole universally, the world will proclaim the glory of God. And Israel will be in their land and Jerusalem will be at the center of it. Verse 21, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, some of the Gentiles. My house will be a house of prayer for all the peoples, he had prophesied in an earlier chapter. For just as, verse 22, for just as the new heavens and the, uh, and the new earth, which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And again, he's talking about the Jewish people. And it shall be, verse 23, from new moon until new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, all mankind will come to bow before me, says the Lord. And that's how Isaiah ends his book. With this glorious time where all mankind, you see, almighty sovereign God demands our worship. He's created us to be his worshipers. The sun, the moon, the universe to declare his glory. 
and the apex of all his creation, man, but sin has, has turned our heart from him. And generation after generation from Adam and Eve, there is a, a fist in the face of God. And mankind has forged their own way. They seek their own self-worship. And one day God will rise and say, enough. And he will work it out by his sovereign plan where all mankind will come and bow before him and worship him. God is going to accomplish it. I would love to end the book at verse 23. But there's verse 24. And this is actually how Isaiah ended the book. Then they shall go forth and look. They'll look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. And it's simply reminding us that it's a shocking verse that even in the glories of the coming kingdom, when all living mankind will come and worship him and bow before him, where death and sin, though not eliminated in this kingdom, will be greatly diminished as we enter into eventually this millennial or this, this glorious state of eternity, even in that thousand-year reign of Christ, as he reigns supreme in Jerusalem, there will be the constant reminder God is holy, and he's just, and sin will be dealt with. And if we are to take this at face value, literally, even in this glorious time at the millennial kingdom, there will be a perpetual reminder somewhere outside of Jerusalem. This was the picture of Gehenna, the, the, on, the ongoing burning place where garbage would be burned. This will be a place of perpetual reminder. Sin will always be dealt with. Throughout Isaiah, there have been this emphasis of these two destinies. To those who trust him, there is eternal glory a world of righteousness and peace and joy that is awaiting us. But to those who don't trust him, judgment and eternal destruction. Now again, I think I, Isaiah 66, this final chapter, is a summation of, of all that God has said throughout the book. And let me just run through some of those key observations, these wonderful truths First of all, in terms of a summary, God is the unique, one and only, sovereign Lord of the universe. <laughs> Make no mistake. And right now, this very moment, he's enthroned in heaven, ruling supreme as creator God. He is the only sovereign Lord. And so he is not to be trifled with. He cannot be manipulated. We can't put him in a box. We can't pull the strings with him and make him do what we want him to do. We are called to bow before him. He demands our worship, and for those of us who know him, we give him our worship. It's a humble and a broken spirit. That's who he's looking for. A word trembler. 
because he's the sovereign. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's no one like him. Second of all, a key theme is that this sovereign Lord calls us to trust him completely with that humble and contrite spirit, with a helpless dependency that recognizes who we really are in light of who he really is. And so when he speaks, and he speaks through his word, we humbly follow it. We care what God says. We care that God has ways that he wants us to live our life and glorify him. We care how we live within our families, the calls of a, of a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband, parents to children, children to, to parents, parents to grandparents. He cares how we conduct our life in our business world. He cares how we act in school. He gives us directions on how we are to live our life. And according to the New Testament, he actually empowers us to live it the way he wants it to be lived. He wants us to be word tremblers. This fall, we're going to do a little short series on the wonder of the word, about seven weeks on the word of God. God takes very seriously how we, his creation, how we pay attention to his word. And do we listen to him, the one who said, I alone am God? And do we, with a humble and contrite heart, order our life appropriately? Thirdly, eternal destruction awaits all those who forge their own path in life apart from trusting God their creator and living humbly before him. This is a, certainly a predominant theme in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Over and over again, we saw that theme of judgment. God was trying to get the attention of his people as Isaiah was writing this to people of his own day, of people that were yet to come as he wrote these prophetic scriptures. Eternal destruction awaits all those who don't trust God. You see, the Bible knows nothing of universalism. It knows nothing of a, of a mindset that says, well, all roads lead there. Your God, our God, we'll all get there eventually. There is one God and one Savior, and there's one way to have eternal life. And so today, by the way, is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you're still playing with the idea that maybe you could somehow through your goodness and God will weigh your good works against your bad works one day in the great scales of eternity, just hoping that your good works will outweigh your bad works, and he'll say, all right, you've earned the right to be in my heaven. That is nowhere taught in the Bible. Salvation, eternal life is a free gift of God. And Jesus Christ provided it when he died for your sins. He paid for them, and he rose again. He did all the work, and he offers a free gift of eternal life simply by believing that that's true, that he is the giver of eternal life, and he alone. And the moment we transfer our trust off of ourselves onto him and him alone, that becomes our day of eternal salvation. It begins. Do you know him as your personal Savior? Man, if Isaiah, if Isaiah was pop up here today on the stage, 
looking back now in the, in the centuries of time as he wrote this, I think he would stand up here and he would beg us. It's Christ and Christ alone, the suffering servant who came and he died for your sins. Put your trust in him. And you had the certainty of a world one day of righteousness and glory and justice and peace forever and ever in his presence. You see, the fourth thing, eternal blessing awaits all those who tremble at his word as true worshipers of God, glorifying his name. That's the essence of the new heavens and the new earth. Again, verse 18, nations will come and see his glory. Verse 19, nations will declare his glory. Verse 23, all mankind will come and bow before him and worship him. There's a new world coming, a new heaven and a new earth, and Christ will be at the center of it, and all mankind who have trusted him as their Savior will experience his glory. There's one more that we see throughout the book of Isaiah, and it's simply this. Jerusalem will be at the center of God's millennial blessings when King Jesus returns and radiates his glory throughout the world. There is going to be a consummation of God's plan for the Jewish people. He has not replaced them with us today. He has set them aside, and all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is the teaching that one day God is going to pick up his program with the Jewish people, and that's so much of what Isaiah was prophesying. And Jerusalem will be at the center of God's plan that his glory will radiate from that city throughout all the world. It's a day that's coming. Isaiah's had, um, I hope, an impact on our life. A book written 2,700 years ago, but we always need to ask that question as I raised it last week. So how should we then live? We can close this book of Isaiah. I hope it stimulates us to, to be reading it more and more and more. I... I <laughs> I mean, there's just so much that we, we left inside this book. So many wonderful truths that we just never got to. I hope we don't close the book and forget it. That we'll come back personally and read it. But, but given what we have studied, how should I then live? You know, this is Father's Day weekend. And so maybe it would be appropriate to just direct some things towards you men like... Men, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want your families to remember you, your loved ones to remember you? If, you? if you are a dad, how do you want your children to remember you? How do you want your nieces and nephews to remember you? How do you want those in your workplace to remember you, who live with you, who interact with you? As a man who is self-made, a man who is successful and accomplishing his, his goals in life, a man who is financially astute and and um, financially secure at the end of his life, hardworking, honest. Boy, nothing wrong with these. <laughs> Those are pretty good, pretty good goals. But you know what God is looking for? You know what God says, I, I want to remember you by? Verse 2. Verse 2 says, 
God says, to this one I look. He was humble and contrite, broken of spirit, and trembles at my word. Guys, today, does that describe you? Did it describe me? Where we see ourselves in light of who God is, and we understand totally and completely, as best we can, I'm unworthy, but He isn't. He is worthy. And God, I bow before you, and you take who I am, and in my brokenness, and in my total inabilities, and not the man I should be, but, but there's a man inside that you can create, and I can become more and more. And it's men as we focus on Him and Him alone. We get that perspective of life, and we see Him for His glory. And when we really know God, we find ourselves broken in spirit and saying, I want to be a word trembler, God. A word trembler. What does it look like? I like how Gary Smith in his commentary worded it this way. He says, people like this stand in awe before the King of Kings who made the heavens and the earth. They deeply respect what God has said. They take it seriously. They internalize it. They make it part of their worldview. And then they implement it every day in their life and in their thinking. Men, as I speak to you directly this morning, are you taking seriously the Word of God? And that means, are you spending time with God in His Word, getting personally acquainted with Him? Are you having conversations with Almighty God in a relationship with Him? It's a person who understands that the Bible is God's revelation to us. God has exposed his heart to us. And therefore, we approach it with reverence, seriously, and we study it carefully. And it's a person who then seeks to implement it. Lord God, if this is what you're calling me to, then I'm going to trust your enabling power that is within me I'm going to live that way, Father. I'm going to be a word trembler. I'm going to tremble at your word. Not, we're not talking about a perfect person, but we are talking about a person who's being perfected by the grace of God. My dad was part of that greatest generation. In fact, he was born at the, at the times uh, America was entering the Great War. 1917. He was a teenager going through the Great Depression years. And then he was in the army and he moved with Patton through North Africa and Sicily and Italy. He was of that greatest generation, but like so many, he came back broken, dependent on alcohol. He was a man who was absolutely hopeless until he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He met my mom, who was a flaming, on-fire person for Jesus, and they had two incredible, wonderful children. <laughs> and the other two of us did survive. My dad was not a perfect man. He carried over from those years of loss, of war, 
pains in his heart and in his soul. At times he was an angry man. He was not a perfect man. But he was being perfected. And some of my fondest memories, not necessarily greatest memories, but fondest memories of my dad was him with the Bible, studying the Word of God, literally upon hours. I have his Bible with notes and pages of notes that he has written. Are you a word trembler or a word forsaker? Nothing else matters. Humble, contrite, and trembling at his word. Isaiah would say, that's it. That's what it takes. He should know. Because as a young man, as he began his ministry, the heavens opened and he saw the Lord. And he bowed before him, humble and broken of spirit. I'm an I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he experienced the favor and the grace of God. You know, the last section of the book of Isaiah, the first sections, 1 through 39, is a lot about judgment. The last section of the book of Isaiah is all about God's coming comfort and peace. Remember this, the first nine chapters, 40 through 48, was the promise of peace, but it ended that ninth chapter, that uh, ninth chapter, verse 48, verse 22, ended, there is no peace for the wicked. And then there was the second nine chapter section, 49 through 57, talking about the Prince of Peace, but it ended with the section, there is no peace for the wicked. And then this last section, but the central chapter of the final section of Isaiah, those 40 through 66, is chapter 53, the suffering servant. He grew up before us like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. But he had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him. He was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and one like one we would hide our face. He was the suffering servant. Do you know what the, the central verse of the central chapter of the final section of Isaiah is the central verse. All we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned each of us on our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That's the message of Isaiah. It's a message of hope and of grace. No, there's not a perfect man or woman in this room I trust that there are men and women here who are being perfected, who've come to that point that Isaiah said that we've trusted in the suffering servant who took on himself our sin. We who were like sheep have gone astray. And he died and he rose again and he's our coming hope and king. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the study over these years. And I pray now that as we, um, as, we, as we close this book, that you would bring back to our remembrance time and time again the importance of what we've studied, of who you are, of whose we are. 
and that, Lord, we will continue to be shaped by it. Thank you for your grace and the suffering servant without whom there would be no hope. I pray it in Christ's name.